Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello again and welcome to episode 19 of Signals to Danger. Thank you to all of you for your downloads, your reviews, your shares, and you know that I love interacting with you all on social media. So if you want to be part of that conversation, go on, find me on Twitter as either Daniel Fox Rail or Signals to Danger, or on Facebook and Instagram as Signals to Danger. If you have a chance, get yourself over to SignalsToDanger.com. That's where you're going to find show notes, transcripts, and some extra bits of info, as well as opportunities to support the podcast, as well, including Patreon. I would like to take the opportunity to thank Robin for signing up to Patreon since the last episode, and also to Mark and Damon for your donations supporting the podcast. Very, very much appreciated. I know that there has been some information coming out from the REIB in the last few weeks around Carmont, um, which obviously is the very recent first fatal accident on the railway for a very long time. And you might think it's a bit unusual that I haven't mentioned that in the intros. I'm actually saving it. I'm saving it because I want to do a little brief special episode, just unpacking what's in that preliminary report. Um, I'm not sure quite yet when that's going to happen, but I just thought I'd give you a bit of an explanation as to why I haven't brought it up, because it's obviously very crucial and it's obviously very current. But... Let's start moving into this week's episode. Last time we looked at an accident that was caused by the abuse of systems on board a train. And this week we're looking at something not being done right again. But the context is pretty different. So without any further ado, let's get started discussing this week's episode. Once more, a passenger express train found itself the centrepiece of a scene of devastation. Although the locomotive and six carriages stood upright and safe, the same could not be said for the rearmost portion of the train. Accidents happen, and they are tragic. But this time round, the inquiry would uncover something truly shocking. The year is 1967, and the place is Connington South. Investigate. 
investigators at the scene searched through the wreckage for the injured. At least 13 people are known to have died. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. One lies metres away and appears partially burned. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. We do start every episode by briefly revisiting the events which were taking place at the time, and this episode is no different. So let's dive into 1967. Right from the top of the year we're making history, as the 3rd of January introduces us to Pew, Pew, Barney McGrew, Cuthbert, Dibble and Grubb for the very first time, as Trumpton lands on the BBC. The following day, however, is far less joyful, as habitual speed record breaker Donald Campbell set out to best the water speed record in Coniston Water in the Lake District. After logging a speed of over 300 mile an hour, he returned for the return run, and at an even higher speed, the boat, the fabulous Bluebird K7, pitched up, somersaulted and slammed into the surface of the lake. This brought an abrupt and unfair end to the career of a true legend. Skipping forward to June, we see the release of the album, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, and I really don't think that I need to tell you exactly which artist was responsible for that one. On the 2nd of September, the Principality of Sealand was established as an independent sovereign nation. And if you don't know what that is, it is certainly worth a Google. Very interesting indeed, and I will not spoil the surprise for you. On the 5th of November, the Hither Green rail crash claimed the lives of 49 people. And while that certainly will form the basis of a future episode, it's certainly of significance in telling the story of this year. To close out the year, December saw the unveiling of one of the pinnacles of human design, in my humble opinion, the Aerospatial BAC Concorde. This is one of the most beautiful aircraft ever conceived, again in my most humble opinion, but I bet you'll be surprised as I was to find out that it took to the skies as early as this. Now that we've talked about everything else that happened that year, let's start to discuss the events at Connington South. Connington South could be found, very unexpectedly close, to the village of Connington in Huntingtonshire. Although six miles south of Peterborough, this village had a population of just under 300 in the 60s. And like most villages of this size, it's a lovely, pleasant place to live. And for those who call it home, I'm confident it's a massive part of their lives. 
and a positive one, I'm sure. But for those who don't live there, don't know its draws, I imagine it's just driven past every day without a second thought, like another name on the road signs of country lanes. Up and down the UK there are villages like this that only exist on road signs for the majority of us. The effect is only amplified when we consider the railway. Over 10,000 miles of the Iron Road crisscross the Green and Pleasant Isles, and every day people whip by villages and towns without knowing their names. Places without stations, places unassociated with the railway other than by sheer proximity. Places like Greyrig. Connington was one of those places. Its main affiliation with the railway in 1967 coming in the form of two level crossings and two signal boxes, respectively named Connington North and Connington South. And people did whip through the area at speed because the line through here was the East Coast Main Line. We have covered this in previous episodes, four in fact, Great Heck, Hatfield and Morpeth, and Potter's Bar, so if you're a regular listener, you will be familiar with the East Coast Main Line. But if you haven't, I'll briefly fill you in on it. The East Coast Main Line, or the ECML, is the core route from London up to Edinburgh. The connector of capitals and the route of the Flying Scotsman. The line sees use by commuter trains around the main towns and cities that it connects. London, Peterborough, Doncaster, York, Newcastle, just to name a few. But its party piece is intercity travel. For a very large portion of the history of the railways in the UK, this is where some of the biggest, strongest and, well, fastest trains have earned their way. The iconic high-speed train plied its trade here for more than four decades. Mallard broke the steam speed record on these rails and, of course, the LNAR green coat of the Flying Scotsman blasted past the windows of signal boxes and stations up and down the country for many years. It's clear that this is the very definition of an arterial route, carrying the nation up and down the nation. So our scene is set. The village of Connington, home to two signal boxes, two crossings and 300 villages. Which brings us to the 5th of March, 1967. As the sun set on the east of England, the people of Connington drew their curtains, finished up their supper and turned in for the night. While the day was winding up in Connington, around 70 miles south, activity was on the increase. The southern terminus of the East Coast Main Line is London King's Cross, and in the platforms there, a train was being prepared for departure, the 2230 Express to Edinburgh. This train was comprised of 11 coaches, or rather more specifically a brake van, three post office sorting vans, one sleeping car, five passenger coaches and yet another brake van fairly standard fare for this era, and indeed for this time of night. The number of passengers needing to travel at this unsociable hour is obviously lower than in the middle of the day, but this gave opportunities for the railway to transport other important goods around. And it made sense. While the number of people using these services were lower overnight, the equipment being used to make the journey wasn't any less stronger. To make express timings, express locomotives needed to be used. Those people who were getting the train in the middle of the night 
still wanted to get to Edinburgh in a reasonable time frame. So, they still strapped on the same powerful locomotive, and their extra power capacity could be used to haul, say, three post office sorting vans. I won't say that this was made infinitely easier by the fact that trains were composed of carriages and vans and you could mix and match to serve your purpose and not the multiple units that we've just seen in the last few decades. Coaching stock really is the exception nowadays and not the rule, but you can understand how it made the railway slightly easier to to run at times. But all this aside... I've already mentioned in this episode a few iconic trains which powered up and down the ECML, but I've definitely left one out. And there are probably a few of you out there who noticed. Between the steam era and the advent of the high-speed train, the brunt of East Coast Express work was carried out by a firm favourite of those who like to pay attention what sits at the head of a train, the Deltics. Deltic was never an official name of the class, In fact, it's actually a bit of a Big Ben situation. In the same way that the Elizabeth Tower is predominantly referred to by the name of the bell which resides within, the Type 5 diesel-electric locomotive became known by the name of her engines. And I actually think that's fairly acceptable, because what an engine. The Napier Deltic was an 18-cylinder, 1650-brake-horsepower monster, and the Deltics had two of them within their body, This meant that they were capable of doing a ton, hitting a hundred miles an hour, in routine service up and down the line. No poor fireman shoveling his life away, just a smartly dressed driver, sat in a reasonable chair, perched up high in his cab. The Deltics were a step change in the performance of the East Coast Main Line. And as the hands of the clock ticked to half past ten on the night of the 5th of March... D-9004, the Queen's Own Highlanders, named for an infantry regiment, spat smoke into the air as it hauled the eleven carriages away from the platforms of King's Cross, not scheduled to stop until it reached Grantham at twenty-five past midnight. For the 147 passengers on board, their journey north had begun. The first half hour of the journey was relatively uneventful as far as those were concerned. Signals passed by in the dark and the locomotive powered on through the night. The driver, a Mr B. Orkton, sat in the left-hand chair, hands on the controls and he was joined in the cab by his secondman, a Mr Wheaton. When steam made its departure, the fireman was increasingly obsolete. However, there were some duties on the new diesels which a driver could not carry out alone and there was certainly no harm in having a second pair of eyes to spot signals and signs when you've, well, suddenly started to hammer along at a hundred mile an hour. And so for a time, the role of the fireman kind of became that of the secondman, until improvements in designs and changes in the ways of working left that role unneeded. Those seats on the other side of the cab, we still call that the second man's seat. As they made their way north, the train came to Huntingdon, where signals slowed the train to around 15 miles an hour, 
which until this point was probably the most dramatic thing that had happened on the journey. However, the train quickly picked up speed, back to 80 miles an hour, and proceeded onto the bank, down towards Connington. At this point, driver Oakden pulled the power back on the loco, to see if his train would maintain its speed as it headed down the 1 in 200 incline. Didn't quite maintain the speed, and by the foot of the bank it had slowed to 75 miles an hour. It was at this point, at around 23.36, that they reached Connington. As the train passed Connington south, all signals were clear. Neither Oakton or Wheaton had any need for concern. Because of this, it was all the more surprising that there was a sudden, undemanded and unexpected brake application. The train came to a halt relatively quickly, and the crew set quickly about the business of trying to understand why the brakes had thrown themselves in. Before long, that answer became clear. As they looked back into the night along the train, it quickly became obvious that the train had divided. A closer glance showed them that a partial derailment had also taken place. There was no need for careful glances at the rear of the train, however. It was abundantly clear what had happened. The Edinburgh Express was off the rails. At the rear of the train, Jay Wright found himself in the dark. The lights of the brake van he had been travelling in at the rear of the train had been extinguished. The carriage wasn't upright, it was tilted over, and this disorientating situation was made all the worse by the fact that Wright was unable to find his hand lamp in the muddle that remained in the van. If you haven't figured it out yet, Jay Wright was the guard of the Edinburgh Express. He managed to climb from the van with difficulty and got himself down on the ballast. He ran to the signalman, around 200 metres away. As he got close to the box, he shouted up to the signaller, Are you there, Bobby? Bobby is a slang term for signallers, a hangover from the days when trains were controlled by railway policemen armed with flags. We still use it now, and we're a little bit further on from that still. (laughs) On hearing Wright's call, the signaller came to the window. Wright called to him to summon the emergency services, fire brigade, ambulances, doctors. He climbed the steps into the box where the signaller was sending bell codes to both directions. Danger. Obstruction. The control was called and notified of the accident, and Wright went back down to deal with the injured which must have resulted from a 75-mile-an-hour derailment. As the crew started to help the passengers, it became clear what had become of the train. The Queen's own Highlander remained upright, stood proud on the down main line, and behind her, the leading brake van, all three post-office sorting vans and the sleeper car were sat still, fully on the rails, and without damage or disruption, all coupled together. Behind this, however, things started to change somewhat. The next vehicle, the first of the second-class carriages, was still coupled to the vehicle in front and its leading bogey was still on the rails. Its trailing bogey, however, had been derailed to the left. We have mentioned bogies before, but just in case you missed it, these are the frames mounted at either end of a rail vehicle which hold the wheels, the brakes and some suspension. This allows it to rotate and turn tight corners. The coach following this one had been derailed entirely, both bogies off the line, still attached to the coach body, which was leaning over towards the adjacent goods line, its passengers thrown around a bit. 
and if you were to walk back from the locomotive at this point you would find something conspicuous by its absence. The eighth vehicle, and indeed the ninth, the tenth and eleventh. Following back the line from this trailing end of the second class coach there was evidence of this accident having taken place and the damage caused by the derailed bogies, 300 yards of damaged track with sleepers coat and fastenings damaged and at the end of this 300 yard stretch the rest of the express train. Both the 8th and ninth vehicles of the train two more passenger carriages were laid on their left hand side most of the windows in the left-hand side facing down into the ballast were shattered and both bogies detached. The bodies of the coaches themselves had actually fared relatively well considering the force of the derailment had actually propelled the leading bogie of the 8th vehicle a further 100 metres down the track beyond it. The final two carriages were leaning over the down goods line directly adjacent to the main and their bogies too were detached. Most of the bogies in the rear portion had actually ended up piled up together in the vicinity of the final vehicle, that brake van that Wright had climbed from to raise the alarm. Despite the hour, rescue was fast in arriving once it was called for, and by quarter to one in the morning, just over an hour after the collision, all 18 of those injured in the crash were successfully transported to nearby hospitals. Two of those injuries were classed as serious. But unfortunately this is not the worst toll of the accident. In the course of this derailment, five of the train's passengers had suddenly and violently lost their lives. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems it's totally online and built around your schedule it's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Finding an answer to the disaster at Connington was important. Crucially so. There was nothing overly exceptional about the route being travelled, the stock being hauled, or the locomotive doing the hard work. So without any context, any explanation, there was nothing to stop this happening again a few nights later, the next time an express left for Scotland. We investigate accidents to fill in those blanks and provide those answers. In the context of 1967, and particularly this point in the year, there was additional pressure on the railway to explain the failing at Connington. Only five days before, nine people had lost their lives in a collision at Stetchford in Birmingham, so the public was keen for answers. As ever, the railway inspectorate descended on the scene, and the man in charge, the chief inspecting officer of the time, was Lieutenant Colonel McNaughton. 
His inquiry would seek to answer the question as to why the accident had taken place, by filling in some very specific blanks. Firstly, to understand the immediate cause of the accident, what had led to half an express train suddenly derailing and killing five people. And secondly, once the immediate cause had been established, what chain of events had created this uniquely dangerous situation? Unfortunately, derailments occur on the railway. Almost all accidents involve a derailment of some nature, although in some cases it's a result of the accident and others the cause. Because of the frequency of the involvement, a fair few of those episodes so far have used encompassed derailments, and so by now you know that I have a phrase I like to use to understand how they happen. It's almost become one of my catchphrases, and I'm sure you can probably say it along with me by now. But I'll make no apologies, because I do think it's a great starting point. The straight and unbroken rail is very good at keeping track and train together. Something split up the rear portion of this train, and it was now time to figure out what it had been. To work through that statement then, straight. We know that excessive curvature taken at an inappropriate speed can be a contributory factor in this sort of incident, so we must ask ourselves if it played a part here. Well, to be frank, no. Line here is relatively straight as far as railway lines go. No short, sharp curves to catch somebody out and no incredibly low speed limits to be prepared for. The line speed here was 90 miles an hour, although two miles later it dropped to 70. This in itself isn't an issue because we know that Oakton had already allowed the speed to drop as the train travelled down the bank. 75 miles an hour was not too fast for the line here, nor is it too fast for the train, so option one's not the answer. The next part would be to find out whether or not the rail was broken. As part of the investigation, the condition of the permanent way, the tracks, sleepers and associated fixings, was thoroughly examined. And yes, there was considerable damage in the area, just over 600 yards of track demonstrated this damage. As I said earlier, half of it was recorded as having damage to the base plates and fixings which formed the fastening of the railings, rails to the sleepers, and the sleepers themselves were cut. The other half was simply referred to as having been extensively damaged, so you can certainly imagine the state that it was in when compared to that first half. If you look at some of the pictures of this accident, you can see the sleepers are rooted and shifted, the rails are warped and out of alignment. No train travelling over this could ever have remained upright and travelling in the right direction. But was this damage the cause of the accident, or the result of it? The two experienced and competent men at the front of the train could probably answer that question. They saw the track as they approached Connington, recalled no damage as they arrived in the area, and their account was reliable enough considering the amount of time they spent passing up and down this section of line. But despite how reliable they may be, it's kind of a moot point. The leading seven vehicles of this train were on the line, barring the last bogey. If the tracks had looked like this before the express arrived, not one of them would have remained on track. So damage to the rails was clearly not the thing to blame, although it does throw a question into the mix. The train had clearly separated into two parts, 
could this separation have been the initiating event and not an outcome? To answer this, the connection between those 7th and 8th vehicles was examined along with the rest of the wreckage. The majority of the train was connected with Buckeye couplers. This type of coupling was fitted to LNER rolling stock, a lot of which was inherited by BR when the big four were amalgamated. Instead of the old-fashioned method, buffer and chain, where the vehicles were connected by a literal chain and hooks, with buffers on the ends of the vehicles to help transfer braking forces in a controlled manner, the Buckeye was installed on newer stock. This newer, more rigid coupling offered a safer connection, less prone to lateral or side-to-side movement in an accident, and we know from previous accidents that coach bodies riding over each other is a major cause of fatalities in accidents, and rigidity between the vehicles can prevent occurrences of this. The Buckeye coupler is... Well, it's a little bit of a difficult one to just describe in this format, and I would really advise a quick look online. But to picture it, you could think of a hand with the fingers turned back, so halfway to a fist, but not quite there. The top two bits of your fingers would form a bit of a movable jaw, which if you were to hold another hand in the same way, facing upside down, could hook onto each other, latch onto the immovable jaw of the opposing coupler. But, seriously look at a picture, don't rely on that clumsy attempt. In any case, the leading coupler on the 8th vehicle, a quarter of a mile back along the line, was examined. That movable jaw was open. However, investigators came to the conclusion that the likelihood was it was actually damaged in contact with the ballast as the train derailed. In the corresponding buffer on the 7th carriage, that coupling was dropped down towards the floor, not horizontal as it should have been, and its support pin was hanging undamaged on its chain. The coupling was in the closed position, but the lower half of the movable jaw was broken off. Now, they examined the fracture here. It could be a potential, had this broken, had it split the train, had this somehow transferred forces which started a derailment. But the fracture was shown to not be the outcome of a pre-existing issue. It was a sudden, brand new fracture caused by overstressing. The coupling damage here, like everything else we've seen so far, was clearly the result of the accident and not the cause. Which, unfortunately, leaves us at a little bit of a loss on the cause of the derailment. Except if you've listened before, you probably know the next question. I may have skipped a little step to talk about the couplings, but let's wind it back a bit. We talked about unbroken rail, but you know that I don't just mean physical damage to the rail in that context. We also have points. Where tracks join and diverge, we introduce switches and crossings into the mix. And you know what? There isn't exactly a shortage of derailments where issues with these have caused terrible tragedies. Even if we look back at the timeline of this podcast, a mere 19 episodes in, I can name a fair few. Potter's Bark, Greerig and Ealing, straight off the top of my head. Let's review the layout of the tracks here. At Connington there was an up main line running down towards London, a down main running away from London, and where the 2230 Express had derailed, there was also a down goods line running adjacent to the main. When you have lines running parallel to each other in this way, it offers you a great bit of flexibility. Goods lines or slow lines can take slower trains, or trains that have to stop quite often, while the faster ones overtake. 
or they can be used to strategically get one train out of the way of another. This flexibility is only effective because there are numerous points around the network where trains are able to cross over from one line to the other. And these specific pairs of switches are known as crossovers. And that's where the answers here started to fall into place. This length of extensively damaged track with sleepers ripped up and tracks bent and twisted stopped abruptly 40 yards to the north of the signal box at Connington. That damage came to a halt at a crossover from the down fast to the down goods and this inevitably led to a great deal of scrutiny falling upon that crossover and what they found there showed a clear involvement in fact, the placement of this crossover at the very start of the carnage spreading down the line showed that the instigating event, the thing that actually started the accident, had happened here. They also, there was no damage on the approach to the switch set. But when investigators examined it, they found that the left-hand switch rail was twisted and now lay slightly open. On top of this, there was clear signs of wheel damage on the wrong side of the left-hand switch rail. And that should never have been accessible to trains that were passing straight over it. With this evidence in hand, a likely explanation started to fall into place. Had the set of points started to open while the train had been travelling over them? This would explain why only half of the train appeared to have been affected by whatever had happened. In order to ascertain whether or not this was what happened, the inspectorate conducted some fairly stringent tests, with low-speed versions of the crossover being reconstructed in the rail yard at Hitchin and in BR's testing centre in Derby. Now, this sequence of testing showed that the switch rail had just opened enough for wheels to slip between them and the left-hand stock rail, and they had done it at around about the exact point when the seventh vehicle had been crossing the points and a number of wheels, probably around five, had managed to get on the wrong side of the switch rail, causing the carriages above them to derail. Just beyond the points, at some point in this process, the eighth vehicle had dug in hard into the gravel, and this is what burst the coupling between it and the seventh. So, we now have the answer to the immediate cause, and the reason that the derailment took place. The switch rail of those points definitely moved under the train, just enough to cause disaster. And this is the point that the investigators needed to confront to question two. It's one thing to understand what went wrong, but it's a different thing altogether to understand why. And believe me, this is where this tale becomes interesting. Understanding that the switchblade moved beneath the train was only half the battle. 
there is no way that the investigation could just stop there. It's like saying the plane crashed because the wing fell off, or the ferry sank because a hole appeared in the bottom of the hull. Yes, they're technically correct, but they're not the reason the accident took place. And the immediate cause would never satisfy the families of the dead and the wounded or the industry to who's keen to avoid a repeat occurrence. So that next question becomes, why? Why did the switch rail move? The first, easiest, I suppose, possibility is that the points themselves are malfunctioned. We know from previous episodes that these places where the big pieces of metal are physically moved are a mess of complex moving parts, and also parts which are specifically designed not to move. At Potter's Bar in Greyrig, metal struts designed to keep the switch rails the correct distance apart had either failed or were missing, and that allowed the rail to move independently. Those stretcher bars, as they're called, were inevitably focused on in this investigation too. And investigators found that there was damage to one of them, but it was consistent with damage that was caused to the rail itself as part of the accident, and as a result of the rail moving under the train so that option was removed from the equation. If we look back at the disaster in Ealing in 1973, we can see another potential cause. In that disaster, we know that a protruding portion of the train struck a points motor at the side of the line, and in that case, points moved under the train and dramatically derailed it, just like at Connington. So was the cause here the same? Well... While the point work here was set up slightly differently to Ealing, there was a potential for a similar cause. There was still Roddingham equipment towards the side of the track, but investigators again took the possibility off the table. McNaughton and his team were yet to find their smoking gun. There was another possibility, an error by the signaller, and as the inspectorate started work on this possibility, it quickly became clear that it had been the right path to look down all along. The bobby in the box, or rather the signaller on duty, at Connington South on the evening of the 5th of June was Alan John Frost. A mere 22-year-old with only a few years' experience in the role, he had been appointed a trainee in March the year before the accident and passed out to be a Class 2 signalman in August. So, very wet behind the ears to when you compare him to some of the characters that we meet in these tales. However, according to the man who recruited him, he appeared to be an intelligent young man with a good knowledge of rules and regulations. As the inquiry continued, they began to find interesting pieces of information and eventually a potential explanation for the accident. To start with, slight discrepancies began to rear their head, slightly different versions of Frost's account. In an earlier railway investigation, Frost had told how he hadn't been aware of the accident until Wright had called to him and come up to the box. But when McNaughton spoke to him as part of the inspectorate's inquiry, the story he had was different. He told McNaughton that he had in fact both heard and seen the derailment, but explained that he was so shaken he took no immediate action. He confirmed that he had spoken to the signalman at Cunnington North and told him that the train appeared to be coming to a stop, even though he was aware it was derailed. He did not in fact take any emergency action until Wright, the guard, reached the signal box some four minutes after the derailment took place. And that's reinforced by the fact that when Wright arrived at the box, he heard the bell signals and made his own calls on the telephone there. I'd like to think that if Frost had been aware of the accident, 
training should have kicked in and calls should have been made. There's a lot of effort goes into training people in our industry to revert to that muscle memory to protect the line. However, the next part of the story might explain more about the shock that Frost was experiencing. During an interview with the police, Frost explained to an officer that he had unlocked the points accidentally while swinging on the levers as the train went by, and realising what he had done, had panicked and grabbed the point lever by mistake. So Frost had given an account which explained how he had accidentally caused the accident. Swinging around on the levers, accidentally unlocking the points, and then in a panic, grabbed the exact point lever that would have sent the train into disaster. It was an answer to the question everyone had been looking for. It wasn't a good answer, it wasn't an excusable answer, but it was a reason. And this is not the end of the episode. To be honest with you, I kind of wish that it was, but it isn't. In the same way that investigators found discrepancies with Frost's account about whether or not he had heard the accident, bigger holes were found in this story here. Investigators were not about to take what Frost said at face value, even when he admitted accidental responsibility for the crash. Tests must be carried out, and quantifiable answers provided. The main reason for this is that there were systems in place that were designed to avoid conflicting movements and use of the controls in a way that should create danger. This protection is known as interlocking. If a line is set through some points and the signal is green, there is a a lock which prevents you from operating points or putting an opposing signal to create conflict in movements or put trains in jeopardy. Since 1856, interlocking has been part of the railway in some form and it exists all the way through to today. And it started out as mechanical interlocking, an intricate grid of rods and slides which all intermeshed with each other. Some pieces could only move when others were available, whereas others held the remaining ones in place. An incredibly complex machine, almost a mathematical, mechanical computer, which stopped innocent mistakes becoming disasters. If we take it all the way forward to nowadays, interlocking predominantly exists as solid-state interlocking, lines of computer code on special-purpose control hardware. But the principle remains the same, however. There have been some other iterations between these two extremes, and in the box at Connington we found one of them. Almost electro-pneumatic. Well, a combination of a few different types of interlocking was installed there. But in short, the box was protected against silly errors. Some levers were mechanically locked, while others had some form of electronic lock installed on them. But... The same protection that could be found in signal boxes up and down the land was available to Frost. And in order to ratify Frost's tale, investigators needed to see whether or not it was scientifically viable to make the mistake he said he did. After comparing the driver's testimonies with the signal layout, the signals that they said they saw on the day, the points in the area and the equipment on the ground there, investigators managed to ascertain a window of time. A window of time which Frost needed to have accidentally made his two mistakes. And it was two seconds. 
If the derailment was an accident, the whole series of movements from the irregular and premature restoration of the home signal, which needed to happen for all of this to happen, to the commencement of the movement of the facing point lever, must have been completed within a time of less than two seconds, during which time the electric locks on both the facing point lock lever and the facing point lever must have been energised in succession by a separate foot-operated switch. It does sound like a bit of a muddle, and quite hard to follow, but because of that, I think it sounds all the more of a stretch. That's a lot to accidentally do in two seconds. But don't pay attention to what I think of it. I'll read you an excerpt from the report to see what they thought. Even in the event of his being able to complete the lever movements in the short time available, there was thus still ample time for thought, during which safety could have been assured at any moment by pushing the lever back to the full normal position, whereupon the electric lock would have re-engaged. If the derailment was caused in this manner, I cannot accept that it was an accident. The only reasonable deduction, however, from the tests carried out, is that there was only time to complete the lever movements before the train occupied track circuit A, and thus the unlocking and opening of the facing points could only have been the result of a premeditated series of actions which involved tampering with the electric lock on the facing point lever. There were ways to intentionally overcome the interlocking on the equipment. The report even explains a few ways that it can be done. And signallers who worked in these boxes were probably aware of it. So, all of this leads us to another question. A really important one. Uh, an incredibly serious one. And to be honest, an unthinkable one. Could it be possible that a man charged with ensuring the safe passage of trains along the East Coast Main Line had intentionally operated his points, intending to move them underneath an express train? It doesn't take a degree in railway engineering to understand that this could be a dangerous thing to do. I don't have a degree in railway engineering, and I'm pretty sure a lot of you don't either. But we could all imagine that to do that would be daft. We can't take it anything less than completely seriously when we read the conclusion of the report into Connington South, and McNaughton's words are fairly firm. I am satisfied that this derailment was caused by the unlocking and movement of a pair of facing points at a time when the train was passing over them. The signalling equipment was in order, and the points could only have been opened as a result of deliberate, irregular actions on the part of Signalman Frost, who was alone in the signal box at the time, and thus solely responsible for the derailment.
Following the investigation and these conclusions, it's understandable that Frost's character came under intense scrutiny. Nothing in Frost's behaviour during his employment at the signalman up to the time of the derailment at Connington had given any rise to the doubts as to his reliability, and even after the derailment, the part he played in it remained unsuspected for quite a time. In the aftermath, though, it was revealed later that Frost had been discharged from the Royal Marines, suffering from hysteria and an immature personality. But it's important to know that these facts were not in the possession of the railway at the time he was hired, so they weren't to know. Another conversation was reported later in the year, a chat between Frost and the Bobby from the next box down the line. It was alleged that Frost had said he had been thinking of how he might make some money out of this accident. He said, I shall wait until all this dies down and then tell my story to a newspaper. Think of a good way of how I derailed Scotsman and think of some foolproof idea and sell it to the newspaper. These weren't the words of a man horrified at the actions he'd undertaken. Probably not the attitude of an accidental taker of lives. And it doesn't speak fantastically to the character of Mr Frost, which actually is fairly important, because the context in which this was recounted, it was in court. In November 1968, Alan John Frost was charged with both manslaughter and endangering the safety of railway passengers. After 11 days of trials, the justice, Mr Fisher, instructed the jury to acquit Frost on the manslaughter charges, but then sentenced him to two years' imprisonment for unlawfully operating the signals and points mechanism of the Connington South signal box so as to endanger persons being conveyed on a railway. This charge, Frost had changed his plea to guilty. The unthinkable had happened. A signalman, a trusted crucial part of the railway's safety system, had intentionally caused an accident. As if he were a child with a train set, trying to spill his carriages across the living room carpet by fiddling with the switches as they ran by. Systems were in place to prevent accidents. There were protections against errors of judgement or process, but this was different. This was somebody intentionally bypassing those protections to purposefully break the system. Modern systems, solid-state interlocking as an example, remove those protections from a nearby, easily tamperable location and sticks them in computers in other rooms and out of reach. But we shouldn't have to worry about malicious acts. Not from those who are part of the system, part of the industry. But it is clear that these protections need to be as inaccessible as possible. Connington is one of an incredibly rare kind of incident on the network. It's hard to even imagine the findings of the report. And if I hadn't sat there prior to this and read it... I think I'd have struggled to come to this conclusion. Five people lost their lives without any good reason at Connington South, and their story has been bittersweet to tell. Normally these episodes conclude with us talking about how those holes in the processes are patched over, and how innocent people will no longer fall foul of the omissions of planning or blind spots designed into systems accidentally. But this wasn't that. This is the malicious intent of an immature and dangerous individual. 
While protections we put in place to stop accidents will significantly reduce the options and possibilities for those intent on doing something like this again, I'm not sure that the risk can be entirely eliminated. And all we can really do is hope that we're never going to be discussing something similar again. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 19. Um, I know it's a slightly shorter one than normal, but uh, unfortunately the reporting to Connington is only 10 pages long, so thank you for bearing with me with fairly limited material. Once again, please like, share, review. Come interact with me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you do want to support the podcast, and I really appreciate all of you who do, Get yourself over to signalstodanger.com and have a look at the support or the shop pages. And as I say every time, until next episode, travel safe. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.